And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, saw no, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for this day. Lord, thank you for our worship this morning so far. Lord, through confession, through hearing your word read, and through our song. Lord, through the liturgy. Lord, we give you praise, God, for waking us up this morning and calling us to get the gathered worship of your bride here this morning. Lord, we pray, God, as we Consider your word together this morning, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to believe and to hear and to understand. And we pray, Lord God, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today is the last day of the season of Epiphany. Uh, The season of Epiphany, as we've mentioned many times, calls us to witness moments of divine manifestation where the glory and the divinity of Jesus as the Christ is unveiled. And in this passage here in Mark chapter 9, we encounter one of the most profound revelations of Jesus' true nature. The season of Epiphany as a whole is interestingly bookended with very overt manifestations of Jesus both as the Christ and as divine So just as we began a few weeks ago with the baptism of the Lord, we now end the season with a very similar manifestation. The heavens are opened. The glory of God is completely unveiled. The Trinity is on full display. And the Father now audibly speaks. And he confirms Jesus' identity as the Christ, as his Son, the Beloved. There are three particular elements that I would like to draw our attention to this morning as we consider the manifestation of Jesus as the Christ one final time this year in Epiphany. And the first element worthy of note is one in which many of us, I think, have heard before when we come to this passage, and it's the appearance of Moses and Elijah. So backing up, just starting in verse 2, going through verse 4, we read this again. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant and intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Stop there. 
So, our Orthodox friends note here that this is a very clear theophany, right? which I think they're completely right. right? A theophany is a manifestation of God. But this is also, more particularly, a Christophany, right? a manifestation of the divine nature of the Christ himself. And so as we read here, Peter, James, and John, they become eyewitnesses to Jesus' full and complete manifestation as God incarnate. They become eyewitnesses to his divinity. Peter himself records this in his second letter. Starting in verse 16, he says this, of chapter 1, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But the manifestation of Christ does not end with Jesus' change of appearance, with his transfiguration. The Greek word here is where we get our word metamorphosis, right? With his complete transformation. It goes even further than this. Because alongside Jesus appears these two figures from Israel's past, right? Moses and Elijah whose presence signifies it is symbolic of the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets in the person of the Christ. The Lord Jesus himself proclaims this truth twice in Luke 24. First, on the road to Emmaus, in verse 27, we read this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later, that very next day, he confirms this as well to the eleven in the upper room. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Christ is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. But you'll notice very interestingly, looking here at Mark 9, that Mark says very little about the nature of Moses and Elijah's appearance. And he says absolutely nothing at all about the conversation itself. The other two Gospels that record this, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, do say a little bit, but Mark says nothing. Mark only mentions that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. He doesn't give us the details of the conversation, because that's not Mark's way. That's not his purpose. Remember from a few weeks ago, his purpose in chapter 1, he starts his gospel out giving us his his exact purpose. His purpose is that as his readers, we understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark is more interested in what Moses and Elijah confirm to his readers about the identity of Jesus as the Christ than he is about the specifics of their conversation. The end of this scene, there in verse 8, and we actually saw this in our uh, confession this morning, the end of this scene speaks also to this point. As Moses and Elijah fade away, all the disciples see is Christ himself alone. This detail confirms that Jesus is both the fulfillment of salvation history, but also the fulfillment of what Moses and Elijah came to accomplish. But their appearance, this manifestation, goes even further than Jesus simply being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Because while Moses represents the law, he also represents all who have died in the hope of the coming Messiah. 
And while Elijah is representative and symbolic of all the prophets, unlike Moses, Elijah did not die. Therefore, Elijah is symbolic of all who are alive in the knowledge, hope, and salvation of Christ. The great and wonderful venerable Bede, the great and powerful Oz. No, the great and wonderful venerable Bede speaks to this. He says this. He says, the figures of Moses and Elijah embrace all who are finally to reign with the Lord. By Moses, who died and was buried, we can understand that those who at the judgment are going to be raised up from death. And by Elijah, we understand that those who are going to be found alive in the flesh at Christ's coming. So combined, Moses and Elijah are symbolic of the hope in Christ for both the living and the dead. For the hope of the resurrection and for the hope of a resurrected, glorified body. But this manifestation doesn't even stop there. Just by the appearance of Moses and Elijah, we have multiple beautiful scenes of manifestation. It goes even further than simply the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the hope of the living and the dead. In Exodus chapter 34, we read that Moses reflects the glory of Yahweh after his time receiving the law. Right? He, spent, he spends 40 days on the mountain receiving the law. But notice, in contrast in this scene, Jesus becomes radiant himself because of his own inner glory. He doesn't reflect the glory of God. He is God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 even proclaims this. It writes, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We have a song here at Christ Community Church from that very, from that very verse in Hebrews, and it is one of my favorites. The appearance of Moses and Elijah manifests, it reveals to us and to these three disciples that witnessed it, the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Their appearance manifests the law and the prophets. It, it manifests the fulfillment of the living and the dead, the hope of the living and the dead. It manifests all bear witness and will bear witness to Jesus as the Christ. Their appearance and Jesus' transfigured appearance manifests that Christ is not merely another prophet and not simply another lawgiver, but rather that he is the beloved, the very Son of God. The second element is found in the next two verses. And it is the reaction of the disciples, particularly the reaction of Peter. And so we read this. So, so Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. There are commentaries and sermons and Bible studies that abound with theories as to what Peter means and why he speaks here. What we can understand about Peter's personality, right, just from what we read in Scripture, this kind of seems to be typical Peter, right? This is the way that this text is usually taken, right? You go, this is, this is just Peter, right? He has to help himself. He can't help himself. He has to speak, right? Peter seems to be a guy that processes everything verbally, like a lot of us seem to do, right? So, of course, if that's his personality, then this is how he's processing it. But these verses also suggest that Peter does not realize what he is saying, right? Again, he's processing verbally. He's just opening his mouth and he's speaking. 
Luke's recording of this event. Matthew doesn't do this and Mark doesn't do this, but Luke's recording of this event in Luke chapter 9, he even writes that Peter says this not knowing what he said. Right? Again, he opens his mouth, he just speaks. But as we come to this, and we look at Peter's reaction to this event, and we look at the words that he speaks, I think it's important to remind ourselves that formation matters and habit matters. We talked about this a little bit today when we were talking about fasting in Sunday school. Formation matters and habit matters. We are all formed and we are all being formed by every element and habit of our lives. The question about our formation is, is it forming us to follow in the dust of our rabbi? Or is it following us, or is it, a formating, form, is it is our formation leading us away from Christ? For Peter, he has lived, however old he is in this scene, he has lived his entire life of a formation and habit that adheres to the faithfulness to Torah, to the law of God. Peter's life has been formed by a habit of keeping the feasts, of keeping the annual sacrifices, of keeping the celebrations required by the law of Moses. Meaning that his comment in this verse, in verse 5, is not one of simple ignorance like we tend to assume. We usually assume, oh, that's, that's just Peter, right? He, he just he can't help himself. He's got to talk. No, I think this comment is one that is based upon a lifetime of habit and formation. He may not have known what he said, as we read here and as we read in Matthew and as we read in Luke, but what he said speaks to a life that has been formed by the Word of God and by a habit of proper worship and sacrifice to Yahweh. Peter's words are not arbitrary. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, he says this, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This tells us that Peter is able to recognize the significance of the event, even if he cannot fully comprehend it. He did not know what he said. I think we can say the exact same thing about ourselves when we observe the Eucharist every week. We may be able to recognize its significance, but I guarantee you we do not fully comprehend what God is doing in those moments. The same thing about our baptisms. This is why we would discourage a believer from being rebaptized, right? right? We do not fully comprehend things until we are more discipled into them. We cannot fully comprehend marriage until we're married for a while, and even then, I guarantee we do not fully comprehend it. I've only been married almost 13 years, because I know the year. But I know some have been married longer than that, and I'd be willing to bet if we were to have a conversation, you probably still don't fully comprehend marriage, at least in relation to what the Lord God is doing in that mystical union between Christ and His church that, that marriage signifies. These things are all mysteries that point to a greater spiritual reality. And we are able to recognize them as significant, but we cannot begin to fully comprehend them. So instead of writing off Peter's statement as mere pointless babble, right? he just didn't know what he said. He, he, this is just Peter. Maybe we should consider how the Holy Spirit is working in this moment. And how, specifically, he inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to record this event in their Gospels. Maybe there is something to Peter's statements that actually point us to the full identity of Jesus as divine and as the Christ. 
So let's look at exactly what Peter says. Again, these men are absolutely terrified. We can't blame them for this. The glory of God is completely revealed to them in a moment. The veil between heaven and earth is opened. And two guys that have been long gone from the planet are back speaking to this man that they at least know as rabbi. But his, glory, his, complete, his complete person has been metamorphosed in front of them. And so in his fear and his awe, he suggests, look, let me, let's build three tents. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us build three tents. One for you, Lord, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is a response from a human mind that is attempting to grasp the divine mystery that is unfolding before him. In the scene immediately preceding this, if you were to have your Bibles open, in Mark chapter 8, well, I'm not going to read from there, but in Mark chapter 8, in the scene immediately preceding this one, Jesus had just confessed, Jesus, uh, Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Christ. And then right after that, Peter tries to dissuade Jesus from his path of suffering, from his path to the cross. And Jesus responds by calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because, Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then right after that, Jesus takes Peter, whom he's just called the devil, and James, and John, and he takes them on top of a mountain, and he manifests to them the things of God by being transfigured before them. And because of his lifelong formation, Peter, knowingly or unknowingly, is able to recognize in this moment that the kingdom of God has really arrived. And because of his lifelong formation and habit, from the recesses of his mind, and out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks a statement that is a direct reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says this, It is good that we are here. Let us build you three tents. In Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 40, we read this. God tells Moses, this is about the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Tents. You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palms, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God for seven days. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. And you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall dwell in booths, or tents, for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. The Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or tents, serves really a dual purpose. First, it is another reminder, not just a single reminder, it is another reminder to remember Egypt. It's a celebration to remember the Exodus. But it's also symbolic of a reminder that God dwelled among them himself in a tent. So when Peter asks, or, or states, let us build you three tents, or tabernacles, or booths, his lifelong formation and habit proclaims to us a vivid manifestation of the divinity of Jesus. He is not only the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he is also the fulfillment of the feasts. Jesus is the arrived 
promise of the new exodus. And he is the God who tabernacles among his people. Because as John would later write, no doubt from this scene, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. The final element worthy of note here is in how the Father himself responds to Peter's statement. He says this. So again, Peter says, let us build you three tents. He did not know what he was saying because they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's a few things happening in in this particular verse that we can overlook pretty easily if we're not careful. First is the presence of the cloud itself as well as the location in which this takes place, the mountaintop. Notice the, the Father speaks from a cloud that overshadows the mountain upon which the transfiguration takes place. Mountaintops are common locations in Scripture where one encounters God. Again, this event takes place on top of a mountain. Abraham is directed to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. Moses encounters Yahweh on top of a mountain and receives the law. Elijah encounters Yahweh on top of a mountain in a still, small voice. And Jesus himself takes his disciples up a mountain. He then sits down and he delivers the sermon on the mount. Similarly, clouds constantly symbolize the presence of God throughout Scripture. Most significant are the cloud at Mount Sinai, which overshadowed the top of the mountain, the cloud that guided the Hebrews in the wilderness during the day, and the cloud that rested upon the tabernacle. At the transfiguration of Christ, the mountaintop and the cloud are meant to draw our minds both to the exodus, or the giving of the law, and to the tabernacle, which is right and orderly worship that is expected by Yahweh. Because in the cloud and in the mountain, we have further confirmation of Jesus' divinity. And to this point, our Orthodox friends proclaim here, they say that the Trinity is on full display. It is fully manifested here. They say that the Father speaks from heaven, testifying to Jesus as the Son, and the Spirit is present in the form of the cloud itself. It is the glory of God. Jerome connects this to Peter's desire to build three tents. We talked about Jerome this morning in Sunday school. But he states this. He says that the cloud itself is the tent of the Holy Spirit. And he writes, he says, It seems to me that this cloud is the grace of the Spirit. Naturally, a tent gives us shelter and overshadows those who are within it. This cloud, therefore, serves the purpose of the three tents that Peter desired to build. And then he directs his comments to Peter himself. He says, O Peter, you who want to set up three tents, have regard for the one tent of the Holy Spirit who shelters us equally. So the cloud and the Spirit testify to Jesus' divinity, but also, notice what the Father says. He says, this is my Son, the Beloved, or my Beloved Son. For the second time now in his earthly sojourn, Jesus' identity is proclaimed audibly by the Father. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not that he will be the Christ, the Son of God, and not that he is becoming the Christ, the Son of God, but that he is my Son, the Beloved. 
This divine glory and personhood of Jesus is his by his very nature. From eternity past, present, and future, and long before his incarnation, he is the beloved son of God, fully sharing in the essence of the Father. We proclaim this from the Nicene Creed, and we will proclaim it in a moment today, that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And notice an interesting detail here in just this first part of the Father's response. This response is directed toward the disciples. At his baptism, Jesus, the Father directs his identifying proclamation toward the Son himself. He says, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. But now, it is directed toward the disciples. This is my beloved Son. So why is that? Why, why, why does he not say this again? Why is he not just reminding Jesus? Because in Mark's Gospel in particular, the peak of Mark's Gospel is Peter's confession. It moves up to Peter's confession. It moves, flows out of Peter's confession. This is where it kind of, it's the halfway mark. Right? So why not confirm to Christ, again, you are my son, the beloved. Why to the disciples? Because of that moment of the confession. On the heels of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ... And then immediately upon that confession, Jesus, Peter's attempt to persuade Jesus to sidestep his suffering, the Father says, no. I'm confirming to you, Peter, that this is my Son, the Beloved. You, he is the Messiah. His self-testimony of suffering must take place. This is my Son, the Beloved. And so then he issues a very simple command to these disciples. He says, listen to him. This command has a double meaning, both of which are also based in Scripture. First, it is a reflection of Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, through which is known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word to hear. So, in, Hebrew, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, Shema, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the Father's proclamation and identification of Jesus as his Son, the Beloved, what he is doing is reinforcing and reaffirming the Shema and its fulfillment in Christ. Listen to my Son, the Beloved. Shema, my Son, the Beloved. Second, the Father's proclamation is also a reflection of Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses tells the Israelites, he says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and it is to him that you shall listen. This word listen can also be translated as to understand. Listen to him means far more than simply hearing the words of Jesus. It means hearing them with understanding and then acting upon it. Again, this is a reflection of our Sunday school lesson this morning. Or, another way to put this is, hear the words of Jesus in order to believe them, and believe them in order to obey Jesus. Because from the same book that Connor referenced in Sunday school, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Cost of Discipleship, he says, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is, belie only he who is obedient believes. And Scripture bears this out. Right? Again, like Sunday school this morning, this sounds like a work-based salvation, but that's not what is—that's not what this is—what's ha happening here. 
Scripture itself bears this out. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus states this. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Or, hear, believe, and obey. In Matthew 13, Jesus concludes the parable of the sower, as he does with many parables, with, this, with these words. He who has ears, let him hear. Or, if you have heard, then believe. Understand. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Meaning, keep a close watch on the teaching of Scripture. Constantly be doing it. And then both you and those in your hearing, those in the church, should hear, believe, and obey, and thereby be saved. So what are we to do with this? In the command, listen to him, we find the very heart of the epiphany message. We are to listen to Jesus the Christ, the beloved. In a world that is filled with noise and distraction, God calls us to tune our hearts and our minds and our ears to the voice of of his son. Like Peter and James and John, we too are to listen to Christ. Hear, O Israel, hear, O church, and listen to my son. Pay attention to him, hear him, believe him, and obey him. This is where we go from here in the season of Lent. So may God bless the proclamation of his word to the glory of his name and to the edification of his church. Amen.